if you are new here, uh, my name is Jay, uh, as they mentioned earlier. Uh, welcome. This is my fourth week here, so I'm still fairly new here as well. So if you are new, uh, stick around. I would love to have a chat with you. The leaders would love to have a chat with you as well and get to know you. Um, with the email address um, and my phone number, if you do ever need prayer for anything or you want to catch up and just have a chat, um, feel free to reach out, send me a text message, give me a call. Uh, or if you want to send a prayer topic even anonymously, um, you can just send me an email. Um, from an anonymous email address if you have one. All right. Um, and so on that note, um, why don't we go to the Word of God today? Uh, and today's passage comes from Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 20 and read to the end of the chapter, to verse 35. So Mark chapter 3, verse 20 to 35. The Word of God reads, then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called, called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may truly plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mothers and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you once again uh, that... At FLM, we can come together on this day to worship you, to sing praises together in community, to magnify and glorify your Son. And as we open your word to chapter 3 of Mark's gospel, to hear you speak to us. And that's what I pray, Lord, that through this passage, as we unpackage this latter part of chapter 3 in Mark's gospel, that we would come away having heard your voice and having been transformed all the more by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would watch over the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, I don't know how many of you know of C.S. Lewis. Uh, you probably do. If you don't, uh, he was the one that wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, or The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You might have read that when you were in primary 
Uh, C.S. Lewis, I didn't actually know this until after I became a Christian at the age of 21, but C.S. Lewis was actually an Anglican theologian, and he was what we call an apologist. If you don't know what an apologist is, it's not someone that apologizes. Um, an apologist is uh, someone that specializes in defending the Christian faith. Um, and as an apologist, as like a professional in defending the Christian faith, he wrote a book. Um, if you go to Kurong, you could probably buy it for, I think it's less than $20. Um, it's called Me Christianity, M-E-R-E, uh, Me Christianity. And it's a very famous book. He also wrote other books like Screwtape Letters, which I encourage you to read as well if you do get a chance. But in this book, Me Christianity, uh, Lewis gives this logical observation about who Jesus could possibly be. Three things that Jesus could possibly be. And he labels these, uh, it's the three L's. He says that Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is the Lord that he claims to be. And I just want to share a quote from this book. Uh, I'm not, I don't get a commission for, for you buying me Christianity. I just want to share it because it, it really is an amazing book. Uh, but Lewis says in me Christianity, he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he's a poached egg, or else, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he does not intend to. Pretty awesome quote, isn't it? Um, according to Lewis, Jesus is either a lunatic, a liar, or his Lord. And what we find is that with these three possible options for his identity, in today's passage, we come across different people groups that have a different view of who Jesus is, and they each touch on one of these three options. Now, in today's passage, uh, it begins by saying that Jesus went home. And presumably, when Mark refers to home uh, in the opening verse, uh, he's not talking about his hometown in Nazareth where he grew up, uh, but he's talking about the apostles Peter, Peter's home in uh, Capernaum. And I'll, I'll explain why it's Peter's home and not his actual home. Now, if you recall our series in Mark, you'll find that uh, Jesus frequently visits Capernaum. He's gone to Peter's place quite a few times, and Capernaum is actually almost like a headquarters uh, for the ministry of Jesus. And uh, they've actually traveled back to Peter's home uh, to get some rest and eat some food. They're pretty hungry, because if you remember the prior passage, you remember that towards the end of chapter 2, that Jesus and his disciples, they were starving. And because they were starving on the Sabbath, what did they do? They went into a neighboring field. They plucked some heads of grain and rubbed it together to eat, because they were hungry. Now, I can't 
imagine what it's like to eat grain, uh, but I cannot imagine it would be filling by any means. Uh, I eat a lot, and a few kernels of grain would not fill me up at all. And even in the middle of their snacking, the Pharisees come and confront Jesus, and they get interrupted from their meal, their snacking. And so Jesus and the disciples, they head into a synagogue where they heal a man. Well, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand, and again, the Pharisees confront him. And then Jesus and his disciples withdraw because of the crowds that are following them. Jesus is healing the sick, casting out demons, and to get away from it, they go up a mountain. They're already hungry, and they go hiking up a mountain, which would have made them even more hungry. And Jesus appoints 12 disciples and then hikes all the way back down. Now, by this point, if they weren't hungry before they went up the mountain, by the time they came down, I guarantee you they would have been starving. And so the logical conclusion is that they go to Peter's home in Capernaum to really grab some food and get some rest. Uh, but then, you know, you've got to remember that Capernaum is where the crowds first started to form, the Jesus fan club, the guys that thought he was an amazing preacher, teacher, miracle worker, exorcist, not really God, but you know, this is where the Jesus fan club first formed. And the moment that they hear Jesus is coming back, the fan club is waiting for him. And so they all start cramming into Peter's home. I feel so sorry for Peter. Uh, if you remember, they didn't just cram into his home to hear him preach. They dug a hole in his roof to bring a paralytic man. If someone dug a hole in my roof, I would be very annoyed. Uh, but this Jesus fan club, the same guys that were there when the hole was dug through the roof, they're here again. And there's so many people that the passage says that Jesus and his disciples, as hungry as they were, weren't able to eat. Now, it's at this point in verse 21 that Mark mentions that Jesus' mother and his siblings who live in Nazareth, um, news reaches them about everything that Jesus has been doing. They hear news about his ministry, and they're hearing reports from different people about what's happening in his ministry. They're hearing that Jesus is confronting and debating and arguing with the religious leaders. Um, they're hearing reports that he's supposedly performing signs and wonders. And worst of all, uh, they're hearing reports that their, their son or their eldest brother is claiming to be the God of the universe. Imagine, put yourself in his family's shoes. I don't know if you've got a brother or a sister. I've got an older sister. But if my older sister, if I, you know, when I moved out from home, imagine your sibling not hearing from you, no emails, no texts, no phone calls for ages. And suddenly they turn on the telly and on Channel 9 News, they see their brother or sister. A news report saying that he's claiming to be the God of the universe. And he's got a massive following. You'd be like, what the heck? What's wrong with this guy? What's happened to him? And so you can understand their reaction. And they identify with that first option that Lewis gives us. They think their brother is a lunatic. They think this, he's lost his mind. He's lost the plot. And so in verse 21, they do what any loving family member would do. They go out to try and seize him to stop him from causing any further danger to himself, to stop him from telling people you're the God of the universe. 
And this is why I think that when um, Mark said in verse 20 that Jesus went home, that he was referring to Peter's home and not his home in Nazareth. Because when the family members head out to seize Jesus in verse 21, it must have taken them some time to get to him because they don't get mentioned again until 10 verses later in verse 31. And whilst his family is on their way to Capernaum from Nazareth, which is about eight, nine hours by foot, um, it says in verse 22 that while they're waiting, that the scribes, a group of scribes came down from Jerusalem to confront Jesus. Now, this is a side note. Whenever you see the scriptures describe anyone journeying to Jerusalem, you'll notice that they'll say that they went up to Jerusalem. And if they're journeying away from Jerusalem, you'll see that they journeyed down from Jerusalem. And the reason for this is that the Jews considered Jerusalem to be the spiritual capital of the world. Athens was considered the intellectual capital of the world. Jerusalem, for the Jews, spiritual capital of the world. So they kind of speak about it in an elevated sense. And so the scribes, for instance, in verse 22, they came from Jerusalem to Capernaum. They went from north up, sorry, they went from south up to the north. Uh, if you look at the maps, you'll see Jerusalem is down south and Capernaum is up north. So logically, they should, you know, Mark should have written that they went up to Jerusalem, but because Jerusalem's the spiritual capital of the world, it says even though they went from bottom to up, that they went down from Jerusalem. Now, we saw that in previous weeks, that the opposition against Jesus is steadily growing. Uh, religious leaders are against him, scribes are against him, the Pharisees are against him. And so far, Jesus has had confrontations with religious leaders, scribes, Pharisees, uh, from Capernaum and from around Galilee. But the word of Jesus has been spreading like wildfire. And it seems like the religious big boys, because the big leaders of Judaism, they, uh, they were all, all in the spiritual capital of Jerusalem. And the big boys in Jerusalem have caught wind of everything that's happening in Jesus' ministry. They've heard about the authoritative preaching. They've heard about the healings. And they've heard about the exorcisms. And so what, what, what they do is they send this crew of scribes to head north from Jerusalem up to Capernaum to debunk the signs that Jesus is performing and expose him as a fraud. Now, the problem that these scribes faced was that they had no means of debunking these signs and wonders. Why? Because the signs and wonders were legitimate and authentic. You know, today, like, we, like we hear a lot of people say, oh, you know, well, I prayed and I had pain in my arm and the pain left my arm. Or, you know, I had a backache and I prayed and I went to church and my backache was gone. And I'm not, I'm not saying that that's not real. But um, how do you know if someone tells you that? How can you know for sure that that's an authentic healing? How do you know that it's not just like a placebo effect? Or how do you know that that person wasn't just imagining it in their mind? Uh, there's not really a way to authenticate it. However, with Jesus' signs and wonders, the scribes that were there to debunk the miracles were placed in a very difficult situation. Because remember, the man with the withered toothpick of a hand, how do you debunk and disprove a healing 
where a toothpick of a hand regenerates into a fully grown hand. Or if you remember, remember the paralytic man that, you know, they dug a hole through Peter's roof and lowered him. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen a paralytic before, but one thing that happens, and if you're in the medical field, maybe, maybe you know this as well. If you are paralyzed from the waist down or any part of your body, if you actually, if you don't use that body part, the muscles in that part of the body will actually start to atrophy over time. It'll start to shrink. So anyone that, like, you know, if, if, you, if you lose the ability to walk, if you don't walk and don't exercise and use your legs over a long period of time, you'll actually find that the muscles in that leg will start to shrink. And so for, even for the paralytic man, it wasn't, the healing wasn't just him being able to walk again. People would have actually visibly seen his toothpick legs with no muscles on it start to regenerate and have the muscles form back on these legs. And so how do you prove and debunk this? This wasn't just a placebo effect. And you know, if you ever read John's Gospel, um, and if you read specifically John chapter 3, which is where we get that famous 316, for God so loved the world, um, you'll find that that whole passage, that section, is actually a conversation that Jesus is having with a, a special man called Nicodemus. And Nicodemus wasn't just any man. He was one of the Jewish elites. He was on a council called the Sanhedrin, which was like the, the, the board of directors for Judaism. Like he was one of the spiritual ultimate leaders of that day. And this guy comes to see Jesus at night. And he makes a startling confession to Jesus. If you ever read John chapter 3, it begins, the first words that Nicodemus, this spiritual leader of the people, the first thing that he says to him, and remember, Nicodemus is a Pharisee as well the guys that are opposed to Jesus. Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can perform the signs that you are doing if God is not with him. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, because no one can do the signs, the miracles you're doing, the exorcisms you're doing, unless the power of God was resting on his life. And so what he's saying is, you know what, I am a Pharisee. We, the Pharisees, we, the Jewish leaders, the ones that oppose you, the ones that call you out and try to, to prove you as a fraud, deep down, we know that you're from God. Because these miracles, we know that they're real. We can't debunk these miracles. And we know that it's impossible to do what you're doing unless you're sent by God. And so this elite group of scribes in today's passage, they've come from Jerusalem, and they're not able to debunk the miracles that Jesus is performing. And so they're at a loss for what to do next. And so what they do is they make a ridiculous statement in verse 22. They say in verse 22, He is possessed by Beelzebul, Beelzebul, however you want to pronounce it, uh, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Now, this name that they use, Beelzebul or Beelzebul, um, is actually a play on words. Uh, the original name is Baal Zebub, uh, and it's the name of a pagan Philistine god. And the term literally means, you might know the novel, uh, Lord of the Flies. I don't know if you've ever read the novel by William Golding or watched the movie, but the name literally means Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dunghill. Um, and so the scribes, unable to debunk the miracles, make this outlandish claim that Jesus 
you know, he must be possessed by the, the demon of demons, the leader of the demons. And you know what? If he's casting out demons, he's doing it by the power of demons. And so going back to Lewis's options, those three options, if they're putting Jesus as someone who is in league with Satan, who scripture tells us is the great deceiver, they're really implying that Jesus is a lunatic, uh, not a lunatic, a liar, and not to be trusted. So Jesus' family thinks he's a lunatic. The scribes are claiming that Jesus is a liar. And this is where I love Jesus' response. Like, if you ever notice the way Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and the scribes, like a few weeks ago, like they, he says to them, have you never read? Like, he speaks like this to the Pharisees. And it's, if you paraphrase it, it's like saying, have you not read your Bible? These are the guys that all they do is study the Bible. He says, have you never read the Bible? And even in today's passage, when they call him the demon of demons, what does Jesus do in verse 23? This is so gangster. Hey, come here. He says that he called them to himself. Like, you, come here. And if I were to paraphrase, I like paraphrasing scripture, but if I were to paraphrase scripture, it's like Jesus is saying, listen, you numbskulls, how on earth can Satan cast out Satan? That doesn't even make any sense. The kingdom of darkness does not have a political internal rivalry. It's not like American politics where you've got Republicans and Democrats. It's not like the Australian Labour Party versus Liberal Party. There's no politics in the kingdom of darkness. There's not like a civil war going on within the kingdom of darkness. If the kingdom of darkness is divided. It's not able to stand. If Satan's divided against himself, he's not able to stand. They are quite, if you're going to say that they're united in anything, they are united in one thing, opposing the will of God. There is no division there. And so what Jesus is saying is, no. When people see demons falling down before the feet of Jesus, terrified, being cast out, it's not because Jesus is possessed by the king of demons or the prince of demons, like the scribes claim. But in verse 27, Jesus explains to us what is actually happening. Jesus says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. What does that mean? Uh, it means... That whenever the strong man, who is Satan, lays claim on an individual and possesses them, he might claim possession over that individual. But the moment that Jesus, the king of the new kingdom, appears, this strong man isn't strong at all. This strong man gets manhandled by Jesus. Manhandled by the Christ, ragdolled and binded up. Not only that, Jesus not only manhandles, ragdolls, and binds up the strong man, but he plunders Satan's kingdom. It's like Jesus kicks open the door to Satan's house, ties him up, takes his possessions. If there is any way that you demonstrate domination over an individual is you physically tie them up in their own home and take all their possessions. 
Jesus is saying, I've got this kind of authority. I'm not just the prince of demons. You're putting me on par with Satan? I am so much higher than Satan. I am so much more powerful than Satan. And he's saying that I am going to take all his possessions, which is the people that he's been holding captive. I am going to take them. I'm going to liberate them. I tied you up. I'm going to free and untie them. I'm going to liberate them and I'm going to save anyone that Satan has been holding captive. This is who Christ is. You know, I mentioned that I love watching horror movies. I love, like, I love hearing stories about exorcisms and demonic possessions. And there is a part of me that like, I enjoy it because I'm a bit of a weirdo. Um, however, there is another part of me that enjoys it because I know who I stand with. Like, I remember when The Conjuring first came out in cinemas, um, I walked, I used to live in Parramatta, and I lived about a 15-minute walk from Parramatta-Westfield. And I went to watch it uh, with my, my friend called me out, and he wanted to watch it, but he didn't want to watch it alone. Uh, so he called me out, he's like, can, can you watch it with me? And I remember I got there, and he brought his mum as well, and his mum, who's a pastor's wife, ended up watching. So the three of us ended up watching The Conjuring together. And then afterwards, his mum... He got in his mum's car and he went home. And I had to make a 15-minute walk home in the dark because we watched it at night. But I remember I was walking home and I tried to put it in perspective. I am in Christ and Christ is in me. I have nothing to be afraid when it comes to the kingdom of darkness. Satan lays no claim on me because the Holy Spirit dwells in me. And it's not like Satan is on par with Jesus. Jesus, in today's passage, he is so much like if you handcuff, tie someone up, kick the door of their own home and steal everything. This isn't a 50-50 battle. Anyways, we come um, to the passage in Scripture now. If we move on, uh, a passage that I think causes a lot of anxiety for people. If you've grown up in the church, you've probably encountered this passage and it might have caused a bit of anxiety. Um, because it's a passage that refers to an unforgivable sin. Uh, let me read verses 28 to 30. It says, Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Uh, what is an unforgivable sin? What is the unforgivable sin? Have you ever wondered this? And have you ever, like, if you're like me, you're like, oh, what if, what if I've committed that? Like, I'm doomed. Like, even if I go to church, it doesn't matter if I've committed this unforgivable sin. Uh, you might have wondered this. Uh, you might be wondering, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And to understand what this means, we have to understand who the Holy Spirit is and what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is. Now, firstly, uh, I want to clarify the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he, which we live in a world where pronouns seem to be becoming more important. Uh, the Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. The Holy Spirit is a relational being, third person of the Trinity. We refer to the, the Godhead in persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a, a person. And there is a common misconception in the evangelical church 
that um, people have this tendency to equate Satan, uh, not Satan, the Holy Spirit, can't get that wrong, um, the Holy Spirit, they kind of equate him to something like electricity. He's like a power, an impersonal power, non-relational, impersonal. He's like the electricity that God uses to advance his kingdom. Uh, but let me read a few proof texts to explain why that's wrong. Uh, that's actually heresy. Ephesians 4.30, Paul warns us in this verse not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, you cannot grieve electricity. Um, I've never seen electricity sad before. Um, Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Paul, uh, Peter rather, accuses Ananias of lying to the Holy Spirit. You cannot lie to electricity. Um, Acts chapter 10, seeing, uh, Peter sees a vision from God and responds in obedience to that vision. And if you read that vision in Acts 10, it, it says that it's the Holy Spirit that was speaking to him, and Peter obeys the Holy Spirit. Um, if you obey the Holy Spirit, you probably need to see a doctor. I mean, sorry, not the Holy Spirit, the electricity, rather. You probably need to see a doctor. Now, all, all jokes aside, the Holy Spirit is a personal and relational being, which is why sometimes we pray and we invite the Holy Spirit. We, we ask things of the Holy Spirit because he's a relational and personal being. But what is the role of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life? Uh, John chapter 3, in the conversation that I mentioned earlier between Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus declares to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot see or he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So according to Jesus, this new birth, being born again, occurs by the Holy Spirit. Uh, John, 16, eight verse, oh, sorry, John 16 verses 8 and 9, Jesus says, And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he, the Holy Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. So according to Jesus, in John 16, um, the coming, coming to a realization that we are sinners um, is something that the Holy Spirit does. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever tried to convince someone that they are a sinner? I had my mother try to convince me for 21 years that I was a sinner when I was an atheist. I was <laughs> like, I'm not that bad. Yo, I think you're worse than me. I was, I was a pretty rude kid. But no matter who spoke to me and tried to tell me I was a sinner, it wasn't until the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin that I genuinely realized I am evil to the core. And this is significant. Because if the Holy Spirit does not convict you of sin doesn't reveal to you the reality that you have sinned against the Holy God. If the Holy Spirit doesn't reveal this to you, then you don't recognize your need of salvation. And if you don't recognize your need of salvation, you don't recognize your need of a Savior. And if you don't recognize your need of a Savior, you're never really going to come to a true understanding that you need Jesus. And so what Jesus is referring to when he's talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this unforgivable sin, he's talking, about that, he's talking about someone who rejects the person and work of Christ Christ, as revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. According to Christ in today's passage, all sins are forgivable. If you breathe your final breath and you stand before the judgment seat of God, if you've received salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, 
then forgiveness of all your sins is possible. However, if you never come to faith, you never received Christ, you rejected Christ, and you resisted the work of the Holy Spirit, if you die, then you will stand condemned before God and doomed to be crushed eternally under His wrath. And it doesn't matter who you are, because in verses 31 to 35, Jesus' family, we find, finally make it to Capernaum, that eight, nine-hour walk from Nazareth. They finally arrive, and they get to Peter's home, and they call out to Jesus. And Jesus can't hear them, uh, because the whole town's there. Uh, but the crowd notices, and they say to Jesus in verse 32, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And what does Jesus say? He said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, this sounds a bit rude. Um, I think I would have been pretty annoyed if I were Jesus' parents. Uh, but Jesus isn't saying this to be rude. And he's not trying to explain that he doesn't love his family anymore, far from it. If you read about the crucifixion of Jesus in John 19, as he hung on the cross and he was about to die, he entrusts the care of his, his mother to the apostle John. He says, woman, behold your son. And to John, he says, behold your mother. And he want, wanted to make sure his mother was taken care of. Uh, out of love, he ensures his mother's taken care of. And even the brothers and sisters of Jesus... You'll find if you read through the whole New Testament that even Jesus' siblings become Christians. They receive salvation. If you look at James and Jude, uh, if you look in the Bible, there's the book of James or the letter from James and the letter from Jude. They were actually Jesus' half-brothers and they each wrote a letter in the New Testament. Um, and if you read those passages, they begin by saying, Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus and a brother of James. And James begins... James, a servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we know that they were saved. And so Jesus' response in verses 33 to 35, he's not trying to be rude, he's not trying to be cold-hearted, but he's trying to emphasize that salvation doesn't depend on your ancestry, like the Jews believed. The Jews believed if you're descended from Abraham, then you, you kind of get VIP status with God. And Jesus is saying that that's not the case. Neither is salvation dependent on biological relationship to Jesus. Otherwise, Mary would have been saved purely by being the mother of Jesus. But we know that that's not the case. What Jesus is saying in his supposedly rude response is that salvation is not dependent on biology or ancestry, but it's dependent on a spiritual relationship that's initiated by the Holy Spirit. Remember that John 16 taught us that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, the realization of our sin. And Paul puts it in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul says in Romans 1.16 then that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And to all who believe, Jesus says in John chapter 3, that they'll be born again of the Spirit of God. And then when that happens, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new, which is synonymous with that wineskin parable that we looked at earlier. And that is how today's passage ends. Um, 
And like with every passage, we have to ask that question, what can we take away? And I just want to share one observation. And again, this might sound cliche, uh, but the observation, and I think we need to reflect on this with humble hearts. The observation is that Jesus is Lord. Surprise. Jesus is Lord. Now, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but I mentioned that Lewis, C.S. Lewis, gave three possible options that Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic. But you'll notice that we never really touched on this option of being a Lord. Family thought he was a lunatic. The scribes thought he was a liar. But what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? Uh, I just want to share something that happened a a few months ago to me at home. Uh, One evening... My wife and I were getting ready for bed. We, we, we sleep very late. It's probably like 1 or 2 in the morning. And we're getting ready for bed. And we switched the lights off. And we lay down in bed. And I, I was starting to doze off. I was starting to drift off into a deep sleep. And then my wife poked me. Jay, wake up. Oh, what is it? <laughs> Do you love me? What? Do you love me? What are you talking about? I'm trying to sleep. Jay, do you love me? Like, is this a trap? Like, yeah, of course I love you. And she goes, all right, if you love me, can you get me a glass of water downstairs? I'm pretty thirsty. And I did. I went downstairs and I got her a glass of water. Why? Because she's my wife and I love her. But that's on a marital relationship level. I obeyed her because she's my wife. How much more should the Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, the one that is so much higher than Satan, how much more should this Christ be worthy of our obedience? Now, there's many facets and dimensions to what our relationship with Jesus should look like. But I think one of the things about modern-day Christianity that I think is, a, is terrible, and it, it's a tragedy, is that we've watered down our understanding of what lordship actually means. When the Bible says that Jesus is Lord, it uses this word kurios. And this word kurios does not mean a mere affiliation or a relationship or a friendship with Jesus. When the title of Kurios or Lord is attributed to Jesus, the word literally means Supreme Master. Supreme Master, as in a master and a slave. Romans 1.1, when Paul says, I am a servant of Christ Jesus, he uses a word called doulos, which literally means slave, like slavery, slave. I am a slave of Christ Jesus. Even James and Jude. Like, this is how you know that Christianity is legit. James and Jude, the brother of Jesus, they begin their letters by saying, I am a slave of my big brother Jesus. And it's imperative that we remember and understand what lordship actually means. Because otherwise we'll end up with a narcissistic way of handling the gospel. Because sometimes, you know, the the gospel is indeed for me. But sometimes when we think of the gospel setting us free, 
we misunderstand that, you know, the freedom that Christ grants. It's not the freedom to live however you want. We think freedom is like go out and live to your heart's content. Freedom in Christ is not to live however you want. Because humanity will always be a slave to something. But through the power of the cross, the gospel sets us free from being slaves of sin. And it makes us slaves of him. The freedom that the gospel offers is not the freedom to live however you want, but for the freedom to be able to live for him. And when the Holy Scriptures describe about living for God, it implies obedience. When it talks about the Lordship of Christ, it implies obedience and submission. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Even in today's passage, verse 35, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister. The one that does the will of God, the one that obeys God, is my, my brother and sister and mother. We are saved to be a part of his kingdom, to be servants and slaves of his kingdom. Members and citizens of a kingdom that live for and obey a king the way a slave obeys his master. His kingdom and his will is primary in our life. Jesus to you must either be a lunatic a liar, or he must be Lord. And if he is Lord, then his will must reign supreme in your life. This is why the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Those two lines proceed. Anything before we ask, like things for ourselves, what comes after? Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our sins. Everything that's about us comes after, but primarily what comes first is the hallowing, the glorification of his name, the advancement of his kingdom. I've been in youth ministry for quite a while now, and um, I've had a lot of students come up to me, uh, especially when they go from that year 12 towards uni, and they ask me, how do I know what God's will is for my life? How do I know what God's will is for what subject I should study, what what course I should study at uni, what vocation I should go into for my career? How do I know, I get this a lot, how do I know if it's God's will for me to date this girl and ask her out and that this is the girl that God's predestined for my life? How do I know, how can I discern God's will? And I've come to the conclusion that you'll never really know for sure. Because you're not going to hear an audible, I'm sorry to disappoint any single people here, you're not going to hear an audible, you know, if you're like, who should I marry? God's not going to be like, that one. I wasn't pointing to anyone specific there. (laughs) And so what I say to students now is, you won't know what the will of God is for that specific thing. But there are things that we do know when it comes to the will of God. The will of God is for you to repent and to believe the gospel. The will of God is for you to keep and obey his commandments. The will of God is to obey the decree. Be holy for I am holy. The will of God is Matthew 28. Go into all the nations. 
Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the commandments that I have given. There are things about the will of God that we do know, but we're so preoccupied because we've got this narcissistic view of the gospel that it's all about me, 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 that we forget that as servants in God's kingdom, when we say that Christ is Lord, our kingdom is no longer our primary goal. The end goal is Christ. Jesus is either a lunatic, a liar, or he is Lord. And if he is going to be Lord of your life, I encourage you to spend a bit of time this week reflecting what does it actually mean. Okay, I've understood this word kurios. It means a supreme master. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Can I live day by day to make Christ visibly look like the supreme master in my life. Now, I want to enter into a time of prayer now. And I know sometimes that when I preach, I well, sometimes look very serious and sometimes angry. Um, there is good news with the gospel. If you've been living up until this point and you, you look back, you've heard this sermon, you've listened to this passage or read this passage and you've come to the conclusion, okay, uh, maybe I've been following a narcissistic version of the gospel. I've made it all about me and I've made my affiliation, I've, like, I've been willing to accept Christ as Savior, but I've totally been ignoring the fact that he's meant to be Lord of my life. Uh, the good news is that you haven't blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You haven't committed this unforgivable sin and the good news is that if we pray and ask the Holy Spirit to humble our hearts and shape us day by day to understand more of the Lordship of Christ and live truly like he is Lord you will start to see the Spirit of God transforming your life from day to day to visibly live as a citizen of heaven a citizen of a kingdom that lives under the lordship of Christ. So in this moment, if you do feel like you need to come to a place of repentance, I encourage you to do so. Speak to God. Uh, he, is, he is a supreme master. He is the curiosity. He is Lord. But he is not a tyrant. He is a loving, kind, and a merciful master. And he delights in hearing us invite him to shape our lives. So let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Father, we pray that as we we go into your word day by day, we walk with you day by day, and we live for you day by day, that we would uncover more and more of the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. That as we come to a greater understanding of who he is, that that truth would shape the way we relate to him, the way we submit to him. And we allow that the truth would govern the way we obey him. Father, we've failed many times uh, to acknowledge whether by word, deed, or action that Christ is Lord. And so, Lord, we want to take this time to repent and start again but not under fear of condemnation, but a repentance that stems from joy. Because we know that we don't serve a tyrant master, but a kind, loving, and a merciful master. A master whose name is Christ our Lord. And it's in the name of this master that we pray. Amen.